Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, this is your host, David Rothkopf. Welcome to the latest edition of our podcast. I'm extremely uh, happy to be joined today by Representative uh, Jamie Raskin, Democrat of uh, Maryland. Uh, thank you for joining us today, Congressman. Delighted to be with you, David. Thanks for having me. Uh, clearly, you come at this with a special perspective, be serving both on the Judiciary Committee and on the Oversight and Government Reform Committee. Uh, and I think the story of the week remains the story of impeachment, although um, you know, it, it, we tend to be easily distracted, right? We had this display by these uh, Republicans in the skiff yesterday. We've had debates about the use of the word lynching. Um, and, you know, it seems to me that to some extent these things have happened because the substantive elements of the, uh, the, this preliminary phase of the investigation uh, seem to be so damning. Uh, and indeed, the, the, the Bill Taylor testimony uh, in particular seems to stand up alongside perhaps of the, the White House memorandum with regard to the Zelensky conversation uh, as the most concrete evidence we've got of wrongdoing on the Ukraine front. Uh, do, you, are, do you agree with that perspective? And, and do you think we're getting closer and closer to the point where we are going to go from the behind-closed-doors phase of this to more open, uh, traditional uh, House impeachment hearings? Yes, we've been treated to one diversion and distraction after another by the Republican Party, which is running away as quickly as it can from the substance of events. Uh, it, it seems overwhelmingly clear and increasingly irrefutable, or at least they brought forward no evidence to refute it, that uh, the president uh, withheld $391 million in uh, military and security assistance that we in Congress had voted for Ukraine, a besieged ally resisting Russian military aggression and attack, uh, all in order to shake down the Ukrainian president, uh, Mr. Zelensky, for uh, his cooperation in promoting uh, the conspiracy theories that the Republicans favor about the 2016 election campaign, essentially substituting Ukrainian interference for Russian interference, um, and for uh, the production of uh, new damaging material about Joe Biden, uh, the president's potential um, adversary, and his son, Hunter Biden. So, this is an outrageous abuse of the office and the conversion of the presidency into an instrument of uh, re-election. What we've seen is uh, 
longtime uh, civil service people and patriotic State Department personnel standing up and essentially saying they're going to tell the truth. They don't care how much they're being intimidated and cowed and threatened by the administration. It's a remarkable thing to see. I, I know that the Republicans call it the deep state, but in democracy, the real deep state is the people. And the people who've come to work for our government uh, are the servants of the people. And then what we've got at the top of government today is basically um, a imposter regime headed up by Donald Trump. And then, um, you know, the, the vigilante uh, shadow operation conducted by uh, Rudy Giuliani and his henchmen, uh, Parnas and Fruman. Um, and then others like Pompeo, who apparently have cooperated. So I think that's the real story. They've offered uh, no counter evidence in any way, and there doesn't appear to be any. Um, our process is uh, precisely the committee process of Congress. Uh, the Democrats get an hour to question, the, and our staff person and staff counsel does that. Then the Republicans get an hour to question, and their staff counsel does it. Then we go back and forth, 45 minutes each, and then the Democrats and Republicans, uh, again, take turns as members asking questions. So it's perfectly evenly divided. Uh, it's what's always happened, and they decided to storm the uh, impeachment hearing room, violating the security of the SCIF, bringing in uh, without telling anyone their telephones and compromising the security of, um, you know, of the Intelligence Committee's SCIF office. And then the whole time they're basically impersonating freedom riders. Um, so yeah. it's, the, you know, the first, the first uh, sit-in protesters in American history who are out fighting for high crimes and misdemeanors. <laughs> yeah. You know, it, it seems a little bit like they're uh, adopting uh, a technique from the uh, Air Force um, a, as a defensive technique, which is a planes release chaff to distract guided missiles from hitting them. And the chaff can be anything and float in any direction. So long as it distracts the missiles, it works. And so part of it, you know, can be these hearings. Part of it can be whatever the president's latest antics have been. One of the things that they've been most successful on, and it's really a page just directly out of the uh, Mueller um, report uh, playbook, is coming up with um, new rules, moving the goalpost, right? So uh, you just described a, an abuse of power that seems as clear as can be and may also involve other kinds of crimes, bribery or extortion or federal election law violations and so forth. But, you know, the Republicans have somehow managed to get a lot of Democrats to be talking about a quid pro quo, as though quid pro quo actually had anything to do with this. And it's exactly what happened with collusion. And so the yeah. Mueller report came out and everybody said, oh, well, uh, there's collusion. There's no collusion. And, and collusion was irrelevant, not a legal term. Um, and I'm just wondering how you feel about this. You know, we're replaying this. It seems like we're falling for the same thing over again. Yeah, well, right. They've gone from no collusion, no obstruction to no quid pro quo. Of course, there was lots of evidence of collusion, more than 100 contacts between the Trump campaign uh, and uh, Vladimir Putin and his various emissaries. Um, and the evidence of obstruction of justice was overwhelming, at least nine or 10 
uh, episodes of the president tampering with witnesses, interfering to coach testimony, trying to shut down particular lines of inquiry and so on. But, you know, they're, they've made up um, the boogeyman of quid pro quo. The, the funny thing, of course, is there is a quid pro quo, which Ambassador Bill Taylor uh, demonstrated very clearly. They were withholding the money until uh, – precisely the political cooperation they were trying to extract from President Zelensky. In a legal sense, we don't need to show a quid pro quo. Um, all we have to do is show the shakedown, which was alleged by the uh, the original whistleblower and has been objectively corroborated by multiple other witnesses and by the fact that the aid was withheld and by the contemporaneous memorandum on the phone call made by the White House staffers themselves. So this is not exactly an Agatha Christie mystery. Um, you know, we know precisely what happened, and we know not completely, but we know lots of uh, how the scheme, the scheme was um, perpetrated uh, by the White House, by Rudy Giuliani, uh, by Pompeo and Pence. But we, we need to nail down a lot more details, but the outlines are very clear at this point. And given that there's no counter story, the Republicans are left to engage in these uh, juvenile antics and pranks like breaking into a committee room where lots of Republicans were were getting ready to ask their questions. <laughs> you know, um, there are more than 50 or 60 Republicans on the various committees that are participating in this. So they are totally equally represented and have an opportunity to ask any questions that they want. Um, so, again, this is another one of these um, phony distractions uh, meant to confuse and bedazzle, not the public so much because the, the public already understands what is really happening, but really the, the Fox News audience, they're just trying to maintain control over you know, the vast religious cult now, which is protecting the white-collar organized crime family, which is running the White House. Yeah, well, you know, you're absolutely right. And of course, what uh, is troubling is that that family, that crime family, has, has gotten away with a lot of crime so far. Um, and I'm not just saying that from a political or hyperbolic perspective, but you've got, you know, case in the Southern District of New York on federal election violations. You've got um, a, a whole set of very credible uh, issues associated with tax fraud that uh, we don't know whether those have been investigated or not. As you say, Mueller made a very strong case of 10, 11, 12 very strong instances of obstruction of justice, which after all was key por portion of the, the, the Nixon articles of impeachment. Uh, and I guess one of the big questions here is a strategic question, and that is, with the House now clearly on a path uh, to, uh, involving impeachment and investigation, which could then lead to an impeachment vote at some point. Um, the issue is how narrowly or broadly do you describe um, the crimes? Uh, how narrowly or broadly do you investigate? Because you have uh, the Trump administration ignoring congressional subpoenas. You have new examples of obstruction every day. Indeed, the White House seemed to know about this uh, invasion of the skiff yesterday, uh, and that you know could be construed as 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 obstruction uh, sure. as well. well. They, they they delayed a congressional hearing by five or six hours yesterday uh, by barging in and essentially attacking the committee process. 
mean, nothing more controversial was going on than committee hearings where both sides were equally represented. So well, you're right. It's a question. No, I was just going to say worse even than that. The witness that you had from the Department of Defense um, had the, the, the Department of Defense tried to prevent her from testifying and she came forward anyway. And then yes. they did this. So there's a series of efforts to keep her from, you know, taking the microphone. Well, no other presidential administration in history has organized obstruction of justice at the level that this administration has. Uh, Richard Nixon, who was uh, no piker at it, was far more selective and focused. Uh, President Trump has essentially tried to pull a curtain down over the executive branch of government and ordered complete non-cooperation with Congress, the people's branch. And everyone has to understand what a massive attack on representative democracy that is. And there's a reason that Congress is in Article One. The preamble of the Constitution, we the people, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and preserve to ourselves and our children the, and our uh, posterity the blessings of liberty, do hereby ordain and establish the Constitution of the United States. The very next sentence in Article One is all legislative power is vested in the Congress of the United States, a House of Representatives and Senate. So you see what's happened is people have created a constitution, have created a government, and then the sovereign political power of the people has flowed right into Article One and Congress. And then you get dozens of paragraphs explaining all the powers of Congress, you know, the power to regulate commerce and domestically and internationally, to declare war, post office, copyright, on and on, you know, immigration, naturalization. And then you get to the powers of the presidency, and there's four short articles. One of them is impeachment, that the president can be um, impeached for high crimes and uh, misdemeanors, for bribery, treason, other high crimes and misdemeanors. And then his essential job is to take care that the laws are faithfully executed and to be commander-in-chief during times of insurrection and war. So it's Congress that has the people's lawmaking power, and our power to get the evidence we want, to get facts, is implicit and inherent in our power to legislate. And the Supreme Court has repeatedly said it, and said it recently in this Mazars decision, which said that we have the right to get all the information we're seeking from the president's accountants about his personal finances. But this is a critical um, aspect of the separation of powers that we're trying to vindicate here. In the meantime, the president is completely obstructing. So your question is right, which is how far do we go in trying to describe all of the lawlessness and all of the obstruction? The President Trump is a one-man crime wave. I mean, you could probably, you know, you could probably detail dozens, if not hundreds, of crimes. So I think what we need to do is to try to get the best possible perspective on the major crimes, high crimes and misdemeanors, not low crimes and misdemeanors, the kind that they impeached Bill Clinton for, um, describe what the course of conduct has been from the beginning, um, and then pick out those major offenses and then turn those into the articles of impeachment. You know, one part of the process is a resolution of imp impeachment where you can give a narrative recitation of everything that's taken place. Then you get the articles of impeachment, which are much more like the prosecutorial charges, the actual indictment itself. And so it's going to be a challenge for us to try to synthesize it and synopsize it and then get right to those charges. But we need to have razor-like clarity in spelling out what the criminal offenses were 
against the our Constitution at the same time that we do give in a separate portion a narrative description of everything that's been going on. Uh, yeah, and and you know it's it's it strikes the the uh, even the engaged observer um, that the list could be so long that it's challenging. In fact, when you talk about uh, the president's treatment of the Congress, it evokes um, not Nixon but the articles of impeachment against Andrew Johnson um, in 1868, uh, which turned on a relationship with Congress that was very much akin. Uh, to the Trump relationship. And so you've got that. And, um, uh, you know, we, we haven't talked about the emoluments clause or anything else. Yeah. In fact, when you were you were sitting there and you were uh, uh, describing how the Constitution lays it all out, I was thinking that the, you know, the, 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 the very short oath that the president takes is to preserve, protect and defend the Constitution. That's the one yeah. thing that we ask of him. And this is a guy who a couple of days ago referred to a uh, that phony emoluments clause. Um, yeah. Well, uh, I'm glad is, you're raising. I'm glad you're raising the emoluments clause because uh, there were both of them, the domestic and the foreign, um, are very close to my heart. And in a certain sense, uh, they're the original sin of this administration, and they're the cardinal sin of presidential misconduct, according to the framers. Right. The 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 the, the foreign emoluments clause says that the president cannot accept presents, emoluments, which means payments, offices, or titles of any kind, whatever, from princes, kings, and foreign states without the consent of Congress. He's never once come to us to ask for permission for any of the millions of dollars that he's been pocketing from Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, uh, Philippines, and so on, all of the governments that are um, freely and enthusiastically patronizing um, you know, the resorts, the Mar-a-Lago, um, the golf courses, and of course, the headquarters of all the corruption, the Trump Hotel, which we call the Washington Emolument. Um, but it's been millions of dollars going in there. And he's never asked for our permission at all. So uh, we were about to take up a resolution that I had on this related to the Doral G7 and the other foreign emoluments. And then when he withdrew it, uh, we had to pull it back just to revise it and uh, other events rather than the Doral, because the Doral was going to be really historic. It was going to be the most unconstitutional event ever to take place at an American hotel, and that includes Watergate, because it would not just bring in all these foreign governments to line the pockets of the president, but also all the money from the federal government departments that go down there, the Secret Service, the White House, uh, the Department of Defense, the Department of State, and so on. This is another one of their tricks. The president has spent a third of his days at Trump Hotel properties on the weekends, and they always they always you know go to Mar-a-Lago or they go to Jersey or Virginia or whatever, and then it costs the taxpayers around seventy-five or a hundred thousand dollars a weekend, um, going in checks written directly from the U.S. government to Trump properties. But uh, the Article Two, Section One, Clause Seven says that the president is limited to his salary in office and may not salary increased or decreased and may not collect any other emoluments from the U.S. government. And they violate it every time um, they take all of these government officials down to, uh, to Mar-a-Lago or other Trump properties. 
Uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's the, the the president is using the government of the United States as his piggy bank, and it goes on every weekend. And the Doral case was an ex, 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 um, egregious case, but putting up Mike Pence at a golf resort is an egregious case. Uh, making the Secret Service, you know, pay for rooms or beverages at Mar-a-Lago is an egregious case, uh, and so on and so forth. And hundreds of millions of dollars have been spent that way. And interestingly, you know, the the you know, in, in in some respects, he was also using taxpayer money, money allocated by the Congress, in order to uh, provide military aid for Ukraine uh, for his yes. benefit by withholding Absolutely. that. Yeah, uh, look, this is in, according to our Constitution, converting uh, public office into an instrument of private gain. And that's all this president has done. I mean, he, he goes to work every day, not in search of the common good or the public interest. He goes to work every day with the idea of get-rich-quick schemes for himself and his buddies and his family. Uh, so uh, but I think we need to spell that out. I think the Monuments Clause is, if I have my way, uh, will feature prominently in it, but the episode, which I think turned everything around for us and was the breakthrough moment for our investigation in which the whole public understands is the Ukraine episode. This is what um, Fox News, or I should say parts of Fox News, because there seem to be some parts of Fox News that are kind of liberated now, but a lot of Fox News is still trying to suppress the truth of what happened with Ukraine. Um, but as this story goes out, um, people are banging Donald Trump like rats jumping off a sinking ship. Um, well, more power to the rats, I guess. Uh, I, I, you know, I promised we would take 20 minutes, and we've we've taken 21 minutes. So I've, I've, I apologize for that. But we could have gone on and on. I really appreciate. Yes, indeed. Uh, well, your, I'm your happy time. to come back, David. Okay. Well, well, I hope we can get you back. I really appreciate your insight. You bet. We'll and thank back. you for the hard work you're doing. And uh, one last point. Um, don't forget that, that built into the uh, Ukraine episode is also a violation of the spending power, because if anybody had come to Congress and said, let's vote $391 million in aid to Ukraine to defend themselves against Russia, but we'll add these conditions that they've got to help Donald Trump in his reelection campaign by supporting his uh, paranoid conspiracy theories and then uh, fabricating dirt on the Bidens, we absolutely would have voted no. So he added those restrictions, those riders, if you will, to our appropriation unilaterally. The president, that violates our spending power. That violates our power to appropriate money. But uh, you, you raised the right question. Uh, how are we going to order all of these various crimes and assaults against the American people? And I think uh, th that's the trickier issue now as public opinion shifts dramatically in our direction. Uh, well, good luck with that. And, and we will circle back. We'll hope to talk to you again soon. Thank you, David. All best to you. Thank you very much. Well, that was an interesting conversation. Uh, for the next part of this podcast, uh, we thought we would do something special, and that is talk to somebody that we know uh, who's actually part of our, our family here at uh, uh, the DSR Network, who one of the people who's helped make it possible, uh, and that's a man named Bernard Schwartz. Bernard uh, was for a long time the CEO, CEO of Loral Industries. Um, uh, and uh, grew a, a, a major aerospace technology company, um, but at the same time has has long been a major force in 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 both philanthropy and in democratic politics. Uh, and um, 
uh, has been active uh, 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 behind the scenes in democratic politics uh, for several decades. And so we thought we would just turn to him uh, because he does have this kind of uh, privileged uh, position perspective uh, and talk to him a little bit about where we are now and where we're going. Um, and uh, we're going to continue to do this. We're not just going to talk to members of Congress, but over the course of the year ahead, we're going to talk to other people who are active behind the scenes uh, in politics who you might want to hear from. Uh, and so this is just the first of a series of such conversations. We hope you enjoy it. Uh, and thanks once again for joining us here at the DSR Network. Bernard Schwartz is our partner in the Rothkopf Group, which produces the shows of the DSR Network. Uh, and he is a longtime uh, donor to the Democratic Party, a philanthropist, former CEO of Loral Industries. And when I was talking to him the other day, um, I got a real sense that his perspective from having been involved in many political campaigns over the course of the past couple of decades uh, might help us make sense of where we are right now. And so I thought we'd have a little conversation with Bernard and get his outlook for 2020. Welcome, Bernard. Thank you for having me. So as, as, as you look ahead to 2020, um, what do you think are the main issues that ought to concern the Democratic Party and a Democratic candidate? The single most important issue is winning the 2020 presidential race. And the reason I say that is that this election uh, will promote as the leader of the American government for the following four years um, a very the possibility of a very unique leader, one that does not believe in American democracy, does not believe in rule of law, does not believe in anything other than winning in any uh, particular um, uh, competition that he has. And how he wins, I think, is unimportant to him. And he has shown over the last uh, couple of years that that is a very dangerous prospect for the American system. So defeating him, I think, is, uh, for me, and I hope for the American people, the single most important issue in 2020. You, the stakes are high. You see it as a kind of an existential election. If Trump were to win, the long-term damage to the U.S. would be substantial. I guess yes. that's what you're saying. Yes, yes. Um, right now, there's still a very large field of Democratic candidates, um, 20-ish. The next debate, which will be on October 15th, I think has 12 participants. Um, in 2016, the Democrats kind of fragmented a bit, and it made it hard to beat Trump. Are you worried that that could happen again? Uh, and if not, what, what is concern to you? I am um, traditionally a Democrat, and uh, I am traditionally an optimist. And I have a great uh, sense of faith in the American system. I believe we've had bad presidents before. We've had bad occasions before. 
And we survived. And, and not only survived, we went ahead. And we've become a leader of the world. Um, so there is much uh, in the basic element of what the American democracy stands for that is appealing to the rest of the world. Um, and then comes along uh, Donald Trump, uh, who knows nothing about uh, government, uh, whose uh, experience in business is very unique in terms of he's been successful. But he's been successful in ways in which at every uh, competition is one winner, and it's Donald Trump. Uh, I grew, grew a big business on the basis that you can have two winners at the table and still be very successful. Donald Trump does not believe that. There has to be a loser and a winner. And he's willing to use any methods in order to achieve that, whether they're legal, whether they're immoral, whether they're not acceptable. He uses them, and he wins enough in order to make it worthwhile for him to do that. I think he was uh, totally surprised that he won uh, the election in uh, 2016, as all of us, uh, us were, but he did win. And he didn't relax. He accelerated, I think, his, uh, his, um, his reach, accelerated the way he uh, approaches every problem, which is Trump wins. Um, and he has put at risk some of the very important non-constitutional safeguards that we have built into our system and broken them down. And even in the court system are at risk because he owns the court. Um, America, if you look at the map, is a Republican country. If you look at the red versus the blue states and uh, versus county by county, um, in, uh, uh, the court system, the uh, uh, mayoralty system, uh, the gubernatorial system, uh, the presidency, the, <laughs> the Supreme Court, the Senate. It's a very uh, Republican system, but it's a system in which the Democrats can and will on occasion win. So it's a balanced system. The trouble with Trump is that he has introduced an unbalanced system, and winning here is a test to the American, um, uh, the American position as leader of the world. That puts at risk our allied system throughout the world, uh, puts at, at risk everything that we have stood for for so long. And it would be very difficult in another four years to get back to the American system that we want and love. So how do, how do the Democrats win in that, in, in that kind of a setting? Um, what, um, what, what will it take? Uh, well, it, it might take one of two or three things. One we have seen recently in the last several weeks is a besmirched presidency. A man who really does not stand for the value system that we hold dear and who is able to offend so many people in America that other issues become less important and Donald Trump's defeat becomes important. That's one way. A second way is that um, whatever happens in the whole world, 
if we have a very successful um, business um, situation in 2020, if the if economy is doing well, if uh, 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 employment is going up, unemployment is going down, if that happens in August and September of 2020, it may be difficult to defeat Trump, who, who claim victory o- over all of those things. And it has some appeal to the American people. Um, but other than those, that, that issue, I think the Democrats have a very good opportunity to defeat Trump. The reason for that is the most comparable measurement uh, to see how we may do in 2020 is to look at 2016, the last presidential uh, campaign. And the, it was a very close vote. Um, we expect in 2020 that there will be more uh, men and women of color who will vote, and they will be Democrats. We expect more women to vote, and they will be Democrats. We expect to have less um, offense to the leader of the Democratic Party uh, than we had in 2016. And small margins of change positive to the Democratic Party in all of these or any of these three will make the difference. And also presumably some Republicans may not wish to vote for Trump again, right? I have less, frankly, uh, I have looked to that measure of safety with some skepticism uh, because I think there are Democrats who say, I'd rather have Trump than a Democrat. (laughs) Well, no, I I guess that's true. Um, What else, I mean, you've described there some things that the the frankly democratic candidate has no control over um but in terms of message in terms of how the party aligns in terms of where on the political spectrum the party aligns what 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 is the formula that you think is most likely to to work for the democrats well first of all i looked upon the primary system the campaign that's going on that everybody is ridiculing as one of the great victories of the American system. Uh, If you have something to say, get up and say it. If the American people like it, you're going to be elected. What's better than that? And to have a free competition, uh, it's costly, it's uh, it's difficult, um, sometimes it's sloppy, but it's not bad. Um, So... It's not the primary in the uh, the competition in the Democratic Party that bothers me. What bothered me is that if you speak to a lot of people, they don't define what the Democratic Party is. Um, and I'm t- talking about even the top leadership. They talk about I mean, Hillary Clinton as much as I loved her and as much as I think she would have been a great president. She spoke about every issue there was. And she spoke with great credibility and great knowledge. But she spoke about too many uh, issues and talked too long about each of them. Um, I learned something from Truman, uh, from pardon me, from Trump, in uh, the last election. He talked about the same three or four issues all the time, irrespective of what the question was, and he said it over and over again. And that sounds dull and stupid and uh, and dimwitted. It worked. 
I'd like to borrow some of that. So I would like to see, and some of us have gotten together to speak to Democratic leadership around the country, to say there are maybe three or four items that every Democrat will agree with. And if we can mold that into at least a semblance of a, um, a, a systemic party presentation, we will stand for something that people in West uh, Pennsylvania, in Ohio, in Nebraska, uh, in Oregon can vote for. We can all agree, for example, uh, in health care. We can all, I'm talking to all the Democrats, we can all agree that there is um, an unfair system to the middle class and getting ahead. Uh, we can all agree that there is a pension system in the United States that does not work and is going to disappoint more than 50% of our people who will not be able to retire. We can all agree that we need an education system that gives uh, kids graduating a good chance. If we can say that that is the basic message of the Democratic Party that we can all agree on, then people could recognize that we have a unified principle. I think that would be a good idea. Well, it's interesting because you look at the Democrats and there are 24 of them and there are lots of messages and people from different parts of the country and so forth. But if you look at the issues that you just talked about, Democrats want, uniformly, they want a better healthcare system that reaches more people. Democrats uniformly want better education system, more uh, uh, less inequality in the United States, uh, rational gun laws, uh, sound environmental policy. The, the Democrats are all in one place. But the interesting thing is the Republicans are actually on the opposite side. There is a very clear choice. If you take Donald Trump out of this equation— Republicans want less health care. Republicans want to deregulate and pollute the environment. Republicans are, you know, beholden to the NRA and not going to produce any gun reform. The Republicans have done nothing when they had the chance to fix the pension issue and, in fact, have made it worse. So it, 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 there's a really strong contrast in American politics right now, even t- Donald Trump aside. I agree with that. It's not Donald Trump. It's uh, a, a difference between the Democratic Party and the Republican Party, and that's a good thing. That's not a bad thing. But it's not good for the Democrats. The fact is that if you go to uh, the Midwest and you go to, to many of those states that are very critical to us, they're more concerned about whether or not they have a take-home pay on Friday night than they are in gun control. They're more concerned about whether or not the kids have debt that's impossible for them to get ahead than they are in immigration. So the issues are big issues for the Democratic Party, but they may not be able to swing an election. Um, Do you think the Democrats can get through the next election without fragmenting left against center? Well, I would have said certainly yes uh, last week. Uh, the issue of Bernie Sanders and where that vote goes within the primary system may confound that a little bit, and I'm not sure as sure as I was before. But I would hope the answer will be yes. Do you think that Trump's attacks on Biden may help Biden, may hurt Biden? I mean, do you have a view on it? I think it'll be irrelevant. You know, just as uh, um, Congressman Shit. 
uh, was a terrible thing to call somebody. It didn't make any difference. You know, two weeks later, I mean, America seems to have a very short uh, attention span. Who's uh, Mueller? (laughs) And you speak today to the American people, they don't know what, what that was all about. Okay, it captivated the audience for what three months, four months. We have a very short memory span in this country, and I'm not sure what captivates them. But what does captivate them is paying the bills on the weekend. Well, and that's—I mean—it's clearly more of a Democratic issue than a Republican issue at the moment. But we haven't made it a Democratic issue. Uh, we have made it uh, healthcare a democratic issue. We should play on that. But these other two or three, four economic issues, I think we can unify around, not have a dispute among the uh, primary candidates, and and um, and go forward in a uniform way, saying we are a party you can define, and this is what we stand for. There may be things that uh, we don't uh, um, agree on, but we agree on these things, and the American people should pay attention to it. Um, Yeah, I remember you once in a conversation saying to me, you need to be able to go to Main Street and have them say the Republicans are the party of Wall Street, Democrats are the party of Main Street, and have them understand it. You have said it before in this uh, this discussion. Uh, the America, the Democratic Party and the Republican Party are different. They stand for different things. I define it, as you just did, as Main Street versus Wall Street. Well, the American people will respond to the voter will respond to that if we play that song. So last question, because we're just we're running out of time. Um, but I don't want I, I don't think we can have this whole discussion and not talk about this issue of impeachment and how that factors in. Nancy Pelosi um, has been very measured, very cautious, not wanted to rush in. Her tone about this has been very measured, and uh, including in a press conference that took place this week. And she got very, a lot of positive feedback by saying, we also have to worry about the economy. We also have to worry about uh, uh, trade and so forth. Um, how do you think she's doing? How do you think the Democrats are doing in dealing with this issue of impeachment? And, you know, is it your hope that it gets resolved quickly or or, or however long it takes? I think impeachment is a gift to Donald Trump uh, because he will not be convicted of impeachment. Uh, they own the Senate. Uh, it'll be quickly disposed of in the Senate, no matter what the House does. Uh, he will... Uh, he'll trumpet that out as a, a Trump victory. Okay. Once again, I've been exonerated. Once again, they have uh, they have had a phony attack on me, and it hasn't proved it anywhere. I think Pelosi was right uh, that uh, the only way to defeat him is in the election process, and the election process is going to take place in November of 2020. And we have the goods and the capability to beat him if we're not uh, offloaded by an economy that is going to be difficult to, um, to overcome. I'm willing to take that chance. But I think she's right in uh, playing uh, her cards by the following message. She feels that it is absolutely essential that the House 
remain democratic. And looking at it from the point of view of what the risks are, if, in fact, Donald Trump wins in 2020 and they win the Senate in 2020 and they have the court system in 2020, the only thing that the Democrats can rely on is the Democratic House. And what she is saying, it is essential that we win that, and I'm going to do everything possible to make sure that Democratic congresspeople are reelected or elected. It's a a really important point. I wish we had more time, but, you know, we're partners in this venture. We can get together whenever we want. We can continue the conversation. I just thought it was good for people to have a chance to hear from you uh, so that they can understand that, of course, you're the smarter, better-looking partner in this venture. Um, But also, you have so much experience in these areas uh, that... Uh, it really illuminates a lot of what we're doing going forward. Uh, and I think it's extremely helpful to get perspectives on this as we're trying to understand. Because right now, the big challenge for our listeners is too much is happening too quickly. And we, we constantly have got to sort of say, what should the priority be? We, you know, how, how do we stay f- focused? How do we keep our eye on the ball? And I think I think talking well, to you I, helps. I, I want to um, uh, express my appreciation for this opportunity. I did call my hair for this. Uh, I, I can vouch. Not, I, I can vouch for that. I did not realize it was not going to be on television. And my God, hair! I'm all dressed up. <laughs> well, <laughs> but, I, I, well, I want to say because this is a you know podcast that Bernard looks great. His hair <laughs> is combed. He's actually wearing a jacket. And there's an American flag pin. So it, it's really the whole picture is pretty impressive. Well, let's do it again. Okay. On video next time. Thank you. Okay. Thank you very much. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.